Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant Podcast. And uh, before we get started, I just want to remind everybody that you can go to Reagan35x.com to sign up for both the G-File and future updates from the new venture. Uh, but we'll get more to that later. Today we have a very special guest flown in, uh, like a rare variety of Chinese crab all the way from Hong Kong. Uh, we have Lyman Stone. Lyman, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. So, Lyman, you are, you are just so, so listeners understand, you are associated with AI. You're like an associate yeah. scholar or something like that? Uh, adjunct fellow, I think is the term. Adjunct fellow. These <laughs> labels, they, they matter to so few. Yeah. Um, and... Like Irving Crystal, one of my heroes, mm-hmm. was a visiting fellow or visiting scholar for like 30 yeah, yeah, yeah. years. So, uh, it was a long visit. <laughs> it was a very long visit. You know, Technically, we're all visiting periods, right? <laughs> right, yeah. So, but you live in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. right? Which is a tough commute to the AEI building. You know, it's it's longer than the typical metro commute. Yeah. Although uh, the metro commute is pretty long right now. That's right. So, <laughs> but, but the space between is shrinking every day because the metro commutes are getting longer. Right, yeah. And what... Just, so what are you doing in Hong Kong? Oh, well, my wife actually is uh, teaching English in a local Lutheran school there. Uh-huh. And then I help out with that some. And we also do some church work in a Lutheran, in a Lutheran church in Hong Kong. But at the same time, I continue to uh, live the pundit life in America via the magic of the Internet. But you are like a – so like there are a lot of listeners who think I'm a wonk. <laughs> right? And and the thing is, I'm I'm very much more of a popularizer. I'm sort of a pundit. You are in fact a wonk. Uh, you can't fake. I, I one of the things having spent twenty five thirty years in this world is I can spot real wonks from poser wonks. <laughs> and anyone who gets that excited about Niebuhr releases and, and tranches <laughs> of data uh, is a real wonk, right? So what is your specialty on stuff? Also, I'm trained as an economist, uh-huh. but whereas a lot of economists you'll catch uh, talking about unemployment and inflation and these exciting things, my focus is population. Uh-huh. So who lives where? Who's going to live where? Uh, how many people are there going to be in the future? This is really my um, my expertise, my business, um, is, is essentially forecasting population. But then forecasting population gets into all these other uh, esoteric issues. What are these people going to think of themselves? How are they going to identify? What's their self-conception going to be? Um, and what causes differences in migration, death, birth, um, all these things? So talking about population really gets you into um, uh, this sort of the, the gray area between economics and sociology. Right. I actually, when I first came to AI, I worked for Ben Wattenberg, who was sort of a self-taught demographer, mm-hmm. and I used to get very excited about the Population Reference Bureau's new releases <laughs> but, um, and, and all the projections of TFR going yep, down yep. around the world, but I've, I've weaned myself off of a lot of that <laughs> stuff. All right, so I want to get to some of that, but the reason why I wanted to, when I saw that on Twitter, you were um, going to be stateside, mm-hmm. and that is because in embedded like a shining crystal of wisdom in your Twitter handle (laughs) is one of my most passionate dorky obsessions, which was the cause of the original First Amendment. That's right. It's also my first op-ed ever in 1992 was on this subject. Mm -hmm. And so two great documents in American history, one forgotten Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, on this. That's right. So 
Explain to people, what was the original First Amendment? The real First Amendment? Yeah, the real First Amendment. The only thing that George Washington said was actually necessary to have in the Constitution uh, was an amendment guaranteeing that the size of the House would perennially be expanded as population grew. So uh, I believe the rule was that it'd be uh, no more than one per, or no less than one per 60,000 people. Which now would give you like six thousand seven hundred reps or something. I, like I that. think that's high, but I, I think it was yeah, closer yeah, something to fifty. Like that. And yeah, yeah. The, the, the one time George Washington spoke at the Constitutional yeah. Convention was to chime in when he thought that I think he thought that forty thousand reps was too high or something yeah, yeah. like that. It was the only thing he spoke up on. He wanted there to be more House members than they'd originally planned on. Right. And you and I basically. With a shocking number of other people. It's one of these weird things. You like, get a lot of people who go, oh, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a decent idea. Yeah, but, but I mean, like, in, in dorky circles, you – in Washington, one of the great sociological fun things is discovering these weird sort of cells of dormant ideas <laughs> that they want to bring. So, you know, like Gold Standard is a classic example, right? Yeah, right? You'll yeah. find gold bugs in all sorts of weird places. Yeah. Um, Will, Woodrow Wilson haters, I know them all over the place. We have a handshake. Um, <laughs> but like Sean Trendy, uh, famously of Real Clear Politics, he's a huge expand the house guy. And there are a few others around. Make your case for why we should expand the House of Representatives. Uh, I think it goes back to the Federalist Papers. James Madison, when he uh, wrote when he wrote several Federalist Papers, they were about this question of the optimal size of legislature. There's actually three entire Federalist Papers about this topic. It was a topic of great concern. And what and what he's responding to is that anti-Federalists said we should never pass this darn Constitution because the legislature is too small. It was smaller than a lot of state legislatures were at the time. And so it will become this elite body that rather than protecting us from tyranny, uh, will in fact become an agent of tyranny. And Madison says, actually, you don't have to worry about that because we have this great First Amendment that means it's always going to increase in size. So it's small now, but it won't stay that way. Okay, we should just clarify for people. When we keep talking about the First Amendment, the original proposed First Amendment that a lot of the people at the convention were talking about Mm -hmm. and thinking about actually had this provision that they were going to constantly scale – up the size of the House of Representatives to, to match growth in population. Yeah. And there's actually an argument that it got ratified, but they lost like Delaware's or somebody's. Uh, Connecticut. Connecticut. Argu- Although the Supreme Court disparaged that argument a few months ago. Uh, or not Supreme Court, the U.S. Uh, uh, Federal District Court of Appeals. They, they basically said, well, no serious historian agrees with this. And I said, and you look at their things and you realize that they didn't actually ask any historians. What right. Think of it. But anyway, so that's what we're talking about is that Part of the buy-in of the Constitutional Convention was this idea yeah. that the House was going to grow with the population of the United exactly. States, and that was supposed to be the First Amendment. Yeah, and Madison argues that this – and when people say the, the legislature will be too small, will be an agent of tyranny, his response is not, no, that's not a concern. His response is, you're right, it will, but we're going to expand the size. And then he says, and look, if it ever seems like it's getting out of hand, there's there's two checks. One is that – the states that are at the disadvantage, so he sees this as the small states, will be active in the Senate to defend their interests in the House. Which, he says this and you think, well, how? Like, procedurally, what does that look like? So, so that was a bit mistaken. But his, his second argument is, besides, Americans would never stand for this tyranny. <laughs> you think, oh my goodness, man, you're this brilliant person. The rest of your, you know, all these other... The, all these other things that you wrote are really fantastic, but this, right here, you just showed your hand that you didn't really think about this one very much. So uh, Madison thought that this was necessary. Hamilton thought that this was necessary. And as long as these guys were alive, 
even though the amendment did not pass, they enforced it as the de facto law. So the the uh, ratio of people to legislators in the House was stable or falling until the 1820s. As long as the founding generation lived, they enforced this as if it were right. law. Sort of like the tradition of two terms for president. Exactly. wasn't a constitutional amendment, but until FDR ruined people everything. People abided. Right. Yeah, it, it, it existed. It was a norm. Right. It didn't need to be in the Constitution. But then as soon as the founding generation died, uh, the slaveholding states got a bit uh, – frustrated about the situation in the House. Uh, And so they pushed for a reduction in the size of the House. This only happened one time in U.S. history. Uh, And so like, you know, Madison and Jefferson and Hamilton, all these guys are dead. um, And they say, well, okay, founders are dead. Let's go ahead and reduce the size of the House. This is not binding anymore. And from, I believe it's the 1832 reapportionment, from then on, the ratio of legislators of population to, re- to legislators rises persistently to the present day. Now, it rose slower during the 19th century because we were increasing the size of the House just very slowly. But after the Permanent Apportionment Act of uh, 1929, uh, it's just skyrocketed. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're now up to something like 700,000 people per legislator. Right. Uh, which is just uh, the only country with larger legislative districts is India, but they're far more federalist than we are. They have much less centralized government. And so this means that there are a bunch of states now where the congressman represents, in effect, more people than the senator does. Sure, yeah. Right? I mean, because uh, you have two senators and one House member. Right. So you have at these outlaw, these statewide in like Canada, I mean, not Canada, Alaska, sorry, yeah. all my family, uh, my Western Alaska. <laughs> um, uh, you know, Alaska had Don Young for a million years, yep. and he was the only congressman. Now I can't remember who's there now. Yep. Maybe Don Young never died. And I remember when I first wrote about this, I was talking about the difference between the, I think it was Montana, which had, which at the time was the largest one district, yeah, yeah. you know, thing with like 700,000. And the next state over had three congressmen and the ratio worked out to the three-fifths clause, you know? It's like like one Montanan counted for three-fifths or whatever in the House yep. of Representatives. Yep. Okay, but all right, so I've always joked that the reason why we stuck at 435 is because the fire marshal said we couldn't get any bigger. Um, it's not entirely untrue, but it's a little glib. What, what was the actual reason for the permanent yeah. thing in 29? So uh, one part of it is there is just this logistical worry that it's just too big. Now, there is also in the Federalist Papers, there is this concern raised that at some point a legislature becomes a mob. It becomes so big that it has no deliberative function. Um, and this concern was circulated, and that definitely motivated some of the staying at 435. And there are efforts today to reduce the size of the House. Daryl Issa, his last bill that he submitted was to reduce the size to 400. And it was motivated by this type of concern that, that House members are part of this crowd, this mob that dilutes their power and makes them uh, inferior as legislators or, or particularly um, weak compared to senators. And this concern sounds rational. At first, you're like, oh, okay, I don't want to be a mob. And that is in the Federalist Papers. But then you realize that this is fundamentally anti-constitutional, right? Mm-hmm. It's not the House of Deliberation. Right. It's the House of Representatives. They are to be representative. And Madison says, finally, the true test of whether this body is serving its function is whether the people in it are representative. And he doesn't mean they vote the way their voters like. He says... If it is all notables and the wealthy. And you look at the house today and you're like, well, it's a millionaire's club. And, you know, social media celebrities like AOC. Um, so She'll be uh, a millionaire soon. Enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, it's amazing what being elected does for your, for your finances. Um, but uh, so 
This was the test. Are these people representative? And the answer is no. I mean, the House was literally a farmer's market for the first several decades of its, of its existence. So to me, this says that uh, whatever your concern about the mob may be, that maybe they'll just turn into this unaccountable mob, the anti-federalist concerns about the size of the legislature were true. It was capped. And Madison's warning about what would happen, how you would know it is failing, has come true. We're seeing the failure of the House right in front of us. Okay, so uh, I agree that we're seeing seeing the failure of the House. And I've got lots of complaints about the House and Congress. (laughs) But is tyranny the right word for it? (laughs) I would argue uh, tyranny is a strong word. But I'm wondering what is a better word for society where an enormous amount of people simply do not believe that they are represented, that they credibly, they in fact are correct, that no matter how loudly they speak to their representative, no matter how clearly they communicate to their representative, they will not, their voice doesn't matter. They're not represented. There's no one who will hear their concern and represent it to the state. Because at the end of the day, with 700,000 people, no individual matters unless it's a very wealthy individual. Um, or, or an otherwise highly influential person, their their ability to be represented is is non-existent. There is no sense in which an individual has representation in Congress at this point. Um, that's not true in your state legislature. Your state legislature, you can go knock on this guy's door and yell yeah. at him, and actually you'll get a bill passed. Yeah, certainly in New Hampshire that's true. Yeah. You, actually, you can be a representative in New Hampshire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. Um, they practically struggle to get people to run, let alone uh, – I think it's the world's largest – Deliberative body, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Hampshire, something like that, yeah, right, per capita or something. So, uh, um, so I would argue that you might not call it tyranny because that tends to assert like usurpation of power, but it's certainly not representative government. Honestly, I, there's another clause in the Constitution where uh, it says that all states will be guaranteed a republican form of government, and uh, since the 1830s, Supreme Court has ruled this a non-justiciable clause. Right, this is inherently a political question. But this, to me, is a, is a basic question about a Republican form of government. It is the, the res publica, the business of the people. If the people are not, in fact, represented, if you cannot actually get the attention of your representative and get them to understand your problem individually, it's not a republic. So I agree with that part of it. And I, I, I'm, I'm even comfortable with the argument about the tyranny part in the sense of it's not representative, right? And the de- definition of a tyranny, although there are some all – some interesting sure, political yeah. philosophy that says tyrannies are the most representative, right? <laughs> that, that's a subject for another day. Uh, but I think this is something that the founders also didn't understand, and it's a broken record on this podcast, is that they they also expected the House and the Senate, but the Congress, to be jealous guardians of their power. Yep. And they haven't been They've that. They have not been. Right? And so now you have this situation where... You know, I call it a, a parliament of pundits where they mm-hmm. care more about being on TV than they care about legislating. They don't, a lot of them legit don't know how to legislate, yep. part because of the reforms that you got that took things out of the committees in general order and you know, a regular order. We don't have to get into all of that. But let's talk for a second about some of the practical reasons why it would be a good idea yeah. to expand it. I mean, for starters, gerrymandering is not an issue if yeah. you expand it large enough. Right? So there's two different theories on this. Democrats will often hear this and they'll say, well, that'll make gerrymandering so much worse because state districts are even more gerrymandered than House uh, than House representatives. But there's actually a fascinating academic paper that came out maybe just a month or two ago that showed that, yes, small districts can be highly gerrymandered, but under almost any pl- – on almost any plausible set of districts, while a lot of the individual districts will look – 
weird and gerrymandered and strange, when you shrink district size, the partisan bias, that is the mismatch of the uh, the final composition versus the votes cast, does shrink. Mm. Um, that in fact, partisan bias will shrink with smaller districts, um, which is contrary to a lot of progressive ideas about how this is supposed, how these things all work. But that is what sort of the computer simulations of redistricting suggest. Um, now, very large proportional districts with multi-members also do the trick, but that's not really in the offing. Um, so, uh, so it does reduce – it doesn't reduce gerrymandering, but it does reduce the aggregate impact of gerrymandering. So there's a, a slight difference there that you'll get these super gerrymandered individual districts, um, but on average, your, your, your average district is – your average outcome is going to look more reasonable. OK. Well, let, 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 let me parse through that because I, I, I was not aware of the – that what I was getting at when I said if you expand the house large enough, um, there is gerrymandering disappears in the sense that if you have a hundred people and you make every single one a representative, yes, right. Therefore, you can't gerrymander an individual. It's only right. when you start getting large populations right. that that's possible. But is it that the state? I mean, I'm, I'm legitimately yeah. curious about this. Are the state representative districts are they? Are they both more gerrymandered but also more representative because so, there are more people who – So the issue you get with state legislatures is that often the rules on legislative district drawing at the state level are that you should prioritize existing municipal or county boundaries to a high degree. Mm. So to the extent you can do that – so there's, there's always sort of a permissible variation in district size. Um, so they'll often just try and emphasize existing boundaries and if that creates some skew, whatever. Uh, but beyond that – you have to think about the, the, the scale at which political clustering happens, right? Uh, that it tends to happen actually very locally. Neighborhoods are really the scale of political clustering um, or, or at most sort of uh, clusters of neighborhoods, which is about the size of a state district um, or the size of what a district would be if you had, you know, more than four or 5,000 uh, congressional representatives. So you get a situation where you can actually create a lot of basically 90-10 districts. Um, but if you can create a lot of 90-10 districts, well, then there's a way to draw that uh, to create a lot of even wonkier districts. Mm -hmm. However, what people often miss is that, first of all, there's no reason that a federal, dis that a federal system would have to, rep would have to respect uh, county and municipal boundaries as much. Um, but two, a lot of 90-10 districts or a lot of, uh, um, a lot of these creatively drawn districts that – as long as you're still apportioning on a population basis, uh, that this will even out across states. Mm -hmm. um, that yes, you will get some states that are highly gerrymandered, but you'll get other states that are less highly gerrymandered. And one of the problems right now is that uh, one of the reasons that state legislative districts are so uneven is that states have different sized mm -hmm. legislatures compared to their populations. So um, there's there's a great debate about this. There's different ways even to measure gerrymandering. So there's just a book out by Jonathan Rothwell. Um, uh, a few months ago um, about how really progressives should be pushing for large multi-member districts because proportional representation favors uh, favors progressives um, due to urban clustering. Explain what multi-representational districts mean. Oh, so the classic example is simply, you know, the whole country is one district and you do proportional representation. But you could also do it where like a whole state is one district and you do proportional representation. Or maybe you have three districts in a state and you apportion among those. 
So multi-member districts are forbidden by federal election law. They have been for a long time, although they were common in the first 60 years of our republic. Many states did this. Um, but they were removed because they were perceived to create one-party dominance. Mm-hmm. Because if you're... If in Parkus, they did. They did, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were very popular with... Uh, with uh, people in New England, because they were a great way for New England elites to make sure that Irish people didn't get a say. Right. You know, there were there were good reasons for removing this. And, of course, if you allowed multi-member districts now, um, you know, as soon as they were allowed, Democrats would hate them because Republicans in the South would use them uh, to secure one-party control in the South. Um, and then, you know, Democrats would be like, well, we're not going to do that in California. And then they would do it. Right. So uh, – um, there's all these different things, but on the whole, I'm sympathetic to the view that that you said that basically at some point the districts get small enough that it's not gerrymandering. There's no gerrymandering in a direct democracy. If we had districts of two people, you could gerrymander it, but like you probably that would be pretty granular. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, at some point. There should be some kind of bell curve, right? And the research that's been done recently suggests that the original First Amendment would definitely put us on the favorable side of the bell curve, right? Mm-hmm. That that we would be at an end where there would be less partisan bias than we presently have. Now, is there some different district size that would be even less partisan bias? I don't know. Maybe. Right. Um, but I'm not sure that the objective is draw- of drawing districts is actually to minimize partisan bias. But it's that's right. And also, even if they are gerrymandered, they would still be more representative. Yes, on the whole. Because even if you didn't vote for your Congre- your representative. Somebody else won in it, their gerrymandering. Just, uh, just as a matter of logic, though, that person is going to be more responsive to 40,000 people exactly. than, than he or she is going to be to exactly. 700,000 people. Especially when you think about 40,000 people, you know, you might only mean 10,000 votes cast, right? So <laughs> you come in as, or, you know, if, if it's, as long as we're apportioning on population, if it's a small inner city district with a lot of foreign-born people children and low voter participation among citizens, you could be talking about a thousand voters, which there's other concerns related to that. Yeah. But I mean, your voice really matters if there's only 900 votes cast. Yeah, that's an, um, it's, it's funny because that's another thing I've been meaning to revisit in a while. I'm kind of fascinated with it. I'm, I'm, I'm reading more about local zoning and regulation and how bad how some of our biggest problems are a result of that stuff. Awful. And teachers unions, for just to pick mm-hmm. an example, are actually pretty passionate opponents of moving election day to like weekends or making voting easier in a lot of inner cities because turnout for those elections is so small. Oh, yeah. And if you've got 5,000 members that you know you can just push a button and they're going to vote a certain way, if everybody voted, that gets washed out of statistical noise. But if only 10,000 people vote and you got half the block that's voting, it's hugely important. Organized interests don't uh, don't have an incentive to broaden the franchise. Right. I mean, but that's, you know, this is, and this is the thing is when we talk about the franchise, we usually talk about people voting because that's what it literally means. Um, but the franchise I'm often concerned with is not the people voting, it's the people legislating. Mm-hmm. That is, having a stake in government doesn't just mean showing up and pulling a lever or now pushing a button, right? It means, uh, it's also participation in civil society. It's participation in the whole process. It's primaries. It's contacting your legislature. Um, but I often think, you know, if we had 6,000 legislators, um, well, this gets into the question people really have is how would this work right. procedurally? Because you can't fit them all in the room at once. They don't need – they're never all in the room at once anyway. Well, and what I would say is <laughs> yes, this would mean you'd have – it would force the change that the House has been resisting for a long time towards digital and remote voting, which mm-hmm. would mean your legislator would sit in his office in your home district, follow the committee proceedings digitally. He would Skype in to ask a question. Then he would cast a vote. And he could sit in the room with his constituents. 
Yeah. You know, and the thing is, you'd get a situation where you could actually have part-time legislators again. You could have people who didn't quit their day job. You could have a situation where uh, where people actually get to get to participate in legislation, where the franchise of who feels like they understand and are a part of the process is greatly broadened. And I think we live in a country right now where there's a lot of anger about our political process on both sides because people do not feel represented. They feel like their voice is not heard. They feel like, whether it's on the right or the left, the system is broken as far as they're concerned. And part of that is because they're they're correct yeah. <clears throat> that go and talk to your legislator. It doesn't matter. They're not listening to you. That That is true. And, and we can fix that. Yeah. I mean, it's a little unfair. We, there's some congressmen I know or congresspeople I know. That... There, there are good eggs in, you know, you open, a, you open a, a dozen eggs way past their expiration and a couple of them are still good to eat. <laughs> I like that. Uh, but I, what I was going to say is that I think a lot of them do listen, but it's more like just sort of taking the temperature. It's sort of anecdotal yeah. polling rather than actual. Right. Engagement. It would also, I mean, so the other benefits, just off the top of my head, even though I think about this more than healthy, well adjusted people do, <laughs> if you actually, which I have mixed views on, but there are lots of people who think there's too much money in politics and advertising and all this kind of mm-hmm. stuff, this reduces that a great deal or could. Yeah. I mean, there, there'd be unintended consequences. It, we don't know for sure. It but. creates a strange set of incentives, actually. So, like, let's say you're a company with, like, um, you know, let's say you're a company with a thousand employees in a district. Right now, you have an incentive to have a very close relationship with your representative. You want to get him on your committee, on the committee related to your industry, and uh, and you're going to donate to his campaign or to his opponent or whoever. And uh, and in doing so, you're engaging in this competition where a lot of other people want a piece of that pie too, and you're engaged in this this competitive interest driven activity. Because there's 700,000 other people in your district and you employ 1,000 of them. If there's 40,000 people in your district and you employ 1,000 of them, well, suddenly the calculus has changed. Whoever's elected in that district, there's no interest competition, mm-hmm. right? You are the big employer in the district. Whoever is elected is going to – they're going to listen, which means on the one hand, you get much more interest-captured legislators, which mm-hmm. is legislators, which is not necessarily good. On the other hand, what it means is – Every legislator is really only beholden to like one interest, <laughs> which means there's like there's like three votes they really care about that year. Yeah, and it liberates else. them to actually vote their conscience on exactly. everything else. Sort of like so, Pat Buchanan on a few things. Yeah. So it actually makes it makes this fascinating situation where you say, look, yes, this means that every legislator will be utterly uncompromising on like three things. Yeah. But it means that you have a lot more flexibility on all these other issues where suddenly all those other interests that you had to balance, you don't have to balance. Yeah. Which also relates to partisan balance, that you're going to get a lot more wacky partisan districts too, which I think will be fun, frankly. No, I do too. <laughs> but but I, I also think, you know, just if you think about it for a second, right? So if you shrink these districts down to the point where you've got 30,000 people in your district um, and – your vote is in effect captured by the the Ramjack Corporation, right? Mm-hmm. Fine, okay, that's so. It now means that there are just way more districts that aren't captured exactly. by the Ramjack Corporation, and so even if you're in their pocket, mm-hmm. the rest of the legislature you can't log roll that many people, right? And so it, it is entirely it's well, it creates a collect a coordination problem where instead of having to. Uh, win one official's loyalty and affection, suddenly they have to win every official's loyalty. They have to win a lot more. Now, the other thing you can get is, well, they're just going to run a lot of their employees. And you say yes, but 
are the employees of a company really a reliable representative of the, of the interest of that company or are a few of them disgruntled? Yeah. Right? A disgruntled employee is far more likely to run for office than a happy one, actually. <laughs> so um, – I do think it, it creates a greater challenge for these companies that on the one hand, they can own their local representative much more easily. But all these other representative rounds also, they're going to cycle a lot, right? Because the incentive to remain for 30 years is going to be much lower. And so it's just going to be harder to keep track of everybody, which yeah. many people see as like a problem. But I see this as a benefit. You're going to constantly be having so much new blood. Yeah. And you're going to be cycling out people with a massive amount now of experience and buy-in to the legitimacy of the exactly. system who then sprinkle out as sort of uh, yeah. you know, civic teachers of it. Exactly. There will be, I mean, the the spreading of legitimacy, and I worry a lot about crises of legitimacy, partly because I, I listen to far too many history podcasts, but uh, the issue of legitimacy is really important because a lot of Americans, to a lot of Americans, our current system is not legitimate mm -hmm. um, for any variety of reasons, but having people who have a stake in it it's the idea that, you know, if you ever want to moderate a radical, put them in government. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think that that actually – that does work. It certainly gets them to at least view the system as, okay, it might be terrible, but it's legitimately terrible. Yeah. No, I, I think one of the reasons why you get Sandersism and Trumpism is people are craving a tribune of the people because they feel as if the institutions are no longer representative and of them. this is the thing is I like that you said tribune of, tribune of the people because this is this great Roman reform where we've got these waves of populism in ancient Rome – where sometimes people, they'd be resisted, right? The elites would say, we're not going to make these these changes. We're not going to make a compromise. And the result is eventually the Gracchi brothers win and redistribute all the land and usher in a reign of terror. Mm -hmm. But then you get these other times where they're like, okay, we'll write some laws on some tablets. And they compromise. And you get like another hundred years of, of, of peace constitutional peace. Yeah. Yeah. To which I say, okay, we have this clear upswell of anger. You can either ignore it or you can just say... Okay, we're going to make a change. And by the way, it's worth noting we're in the longest period of constitutional stagnation we've had since the period that gave us um, Wilsonianism, which mm -hmm. uh, I also know the secret handshake. <laughs> uh, that in the previous long period of constitutional stagnation gave us the Civil War. Mm -hmm. So your options on what happens at the end of this period if you keep resisting it is either Civil War or the income tax, the Federal Reserve – prohibition. The good one in there would be women's suffrage. That one, of course, is, is a positive. Where do you come down on the 17th direct election of senators? Oh, man. Uh, I would say this. If we can expand the House, I think it would be reasonable to remove direct election of senators. Yes. But if we're not expanding the House, I think that we need to give people more options for democratic voice. So I think a compromise is expand the House and reconsider how we do senators. At the mm -hmm. same time, the direct election of senators is this great example where states refuse to recognize the very real problem of massive corruption in the right. election of senators. Right. There was an option for federal reform here, right, where we could have said we're not going to make, make a constitutional change. We're going to attempt a legislative solution and talk about – Minimum standards of, of, you know, ethics for – or you can just refuse to seat people. The Senate can do this. You can mm. just refuse to seat. But they chose not to. Someone should tell Roy Moore that, by the way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that um, could happen. That, that you can just refuse to seat somebody, but the Senate didn't. And so by refusing to recognize a problem, they created an appetite for a more radical solution. Mm -hmm. And so given the fact that – uh, that serious anti-corruption efforts were not on the table, I would be a crusader for the 17th in that time period. Yeah. But if we could maybe fix the fact that the House is 
a light year away from what the Constitution envisions it as being, then it might create space where we can talk about, is there a way to make the Senate, again, a representative body of the states in a way that does not uh, recreate the problems of corruption that we had in the 19th century? Yeah. Now, this process that you're describing about refusing to deal with a problem until enough kindling develops that it becomes a, a, a forest fire, you just look at immigration. Yeah. The position of the National Review for years was if, if responsible people don't deal with immigration, it'll become, it'll fester into such a yep. white-hot issue that irresponsible people will parachute in and yep. deal with it. And I think you could... That's that, where we are. That's where we are. That's where <laughs> Europe is. That's where a lot of places are, right? Yep. Um, so one last point on this constitutional point, which I think is kind of fascinating, is that one of my great peeves with the way we debate the Constitution and... It's bad on both sides in different ways, but the hypocrisy of, of sort of Democrats really does bother me in that they're constantly talking about how we need a living constitution, the constitution is grow and its meaning and interpretation with every generation and all this stuff. It's Felix the Cat's magic bag until conservatives propose something that they think is contrary to what the constitution says. And then they say, I, for one, would not question the genius of our founding fathers, right? And... This gets to the point that, that I don't believe in living constitutions, but I do believe in enduring ones. And the way you – and I can't tell you how many times I've talked about this where people have yep. – smart people have come up to me and said, if we didn't have a living constitution, the slaves never would have been freed. Blacks wouldn't get the vote. We freed them by amendment. Yeah. No, we actually – we used the constitutional mechanism to, <laughs> to do these things. That's not the living constitution. But yeah. people just don't get that. Anyway, so your other – we'll move off this for a little bit because – those hungry for more can find more, and those who've gotten more expand the house punditry than they've gotten in their lifetimes. Well, hold on. Before we move off this, uh-huh. I just want to mention that there is uh, there is one thing to know about this is that this is an attainable reform. This can actually happen. Even if you the – the, the federal district court appears to not be enthusiastic about the idea that this is already law and all we need is the archivist to certify it which I'm, I have a lot of affection for the idea that all it takes is the stroke of a pin to make this law. But, um, but even if you don't believe that, we only need, I think, 25 more states mm-hmm. to ratify this. It's still an active amendment. So if you're listening thinking, oh, that's interesting, you know, your state legislature can fix this. Yeah, that's right. That's an excellent <laughs> point. Go out there. This podcast is the is the match that lights the prairie fire <laughs> that's going to expand. Let the out. revolution <laughs> begin. Um, um, I want to I want to continue this, but uh, first I got to uh, I got to I got to appease uh, the lords of Mammon, which I shouldn't say so disparagingly because I am a big fan of sleep number beds, as I've said before. I think that they're sort of an answer to a very serious problem for a lot of people. Are numbers very serious problems? I'm a snorer. I'll confess. And I have bad back issues. Um, I also often wake up in night terrors screaming at the top of my lungs, but that has nothing to do with that. And uh, Sleep Number Bed solves at least two out of three of those problems. And they're a great product, and we're glad that they're advertising with us. So many couples disagree on mattress firmness. Sleep Number 360 Smart Beds let you choose your ideal firmness on each side so it's just right for both of you. The Sleep Number 360 smart beds are so smart, they sense your every move and automatically adjust to you, keeping you sleeping comfortably throughout the night. Sleep Number has been ranked number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses by J.D. Power. For the 2018 award information, just visit jdpower.com. So come in now and save up to $600 on select Sleep Number 360 smart beds. 
You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. And here's the really important part. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash dingo. Doesn't cost you anything to go to the website sweetsleepnumber.com slash dingo. Thanks again to Sleep Number for advertising, and now let's get back to the conversation. All right, so I want to ask you about what's going on in Hong Kong in a second, but we'll, we'll probably close with that stuff. So you said, talk about how people identify populations, how they identify themselves and all the rest. I, I still haven't read it. I've been a little busy. Um, but this White Shift book, do you, are you familiar with the whole debate? If you don't want to talk about it. I'm familiar with it. I haven't read it, but I'm familiar with the broad outlines of it. Um, so the basic argument is, is that white resentment at going from a majority culture to a minority culture is a real thing. We shouldn't declare it. I mean, again, I haven't read it either, but yeah. declare it intent. We should make legitimate space for it is the argument. That's right. And, you know, uh, and, and there is a certain, at least a double standard out there that, yeah. you know, I've lived in T- D.C. for over 20 years now. And uh, particularly in the 90s, the outrage at the idea that D.C. might not be a majority black city. Right infuriated people and it was something that the washington post editorialized all on all the time no one said it was racist it was just like you know there's this tradition of existence of the black majority here and they call it chocolate city and i get it same thing with harlem gentrifying that dynamic can work the other way and it doesn't automatically mean that you're a racist if you live in a polish neighborhood and Mm -hmm. it goes the other way at the same time, there's something icky about it all. <laughs> and uh, remember, Jimmy Carter got in a lot of trouble talking about neighborhoods remaining their race, their ethnic purity. Mm-hmm. Um, and he almost got uh, uh, mm-hmm. uh, sidelined on it. But I guess the question I want to ask about, I was just sort of segueing into it, is this prediction that America becomes a majority-minority country. Mm-hmm. I have always had some deep, the Rui Teixeira, you know, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't live in abject terror of it in any way. Yeah. But at the same time, I've always been sort of skeptical about it. Sean Trendy and some other people have always made the point that Hispanics, Asians, these people might actually just end up identifying as white. Yeah. And if you look at the my, – my understanding this still holds true is that the average the, – the, the reason why Hispanics are disproportionately liberal – Is because the conservative ones don't identify as Hispanic. That's part of it and also because they're disproportionately poor. And poor people are disproportionately liberal, and as they become, they move up the socioeconomic ladder. They they don't necessarily all become conservative, but they come they yeah. become indistinguishable from the median voter. Yeah, so that's basically true. Uh-huh. Now there are some con, uh, some questions about will they have the same economic uh, trajectory uh, as previous immigrant groups had? Culturally, they're assimilating much faster than, say, Poles or Irish did, mm-hmm. or Norwegians. Uh, but economically, their integration, particularly of, of uh, Mexican-Americans, is is a bit uh, slower. I mean, it is, it is happening, but it's... it's. How much do you think is that explained by just the changing neighbor, nature, nature of work, right? I mean, it used to be if you had a strong back yeah. and a good work ethic, which Italians and Poles and all those guys did, they can get to yeah, the middle so class a, pretty quick. A human capital-driven process takes more generations to equal out. Um, rather than, yeah, if physical labor does it, then the first generation practically can, can almost get there. Um, so, I mean, we are headed towards a future of being a, a minority majority nation. That is, uh, I mean, that's kind of just baked in from fertility and mortality statistics, especially since white people are just dying at higher rates, yeah. um, with deaths, you know, quote, deaths of despair, if you want to call them that. Um, but, uh, 
Also, there are more white people, so by definition, more white people are dying than non-white people. Well, they're dying at a higher rate, I yeah, should yeah. say. Yeah, okay, yeah, fair yeah. enough. Yeah, and, and you know, having fewer babies and then immigrants are disproportionately non-white uh, or non – they are disproportionately non, non-Hispanic white, I should say. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're headed towards a future of being a uh, majority-minority nation. Exactly when we hit that, you know, what will the equilibrium ethnic mix look like? Who knows? I mean, you get things like uh, when the Census Bureau forecasts population. Uh, and this, this is how this works. We say, okay, there's a Hispanic mom and a Hispanic dad. Their child will be Hispanic. Because demographically speaking, we have uh, a purely genetic construction of identity mm-hmm. for forecasting purposes. Theoretically, you can do other – you can get fancy and assume it's not purely genetic. But practically speaking, no one does this. Mm-hmm. Um uh, I've done a little bit of work on it, but not published. So the, the the basic assumption is basically that identity is genetic. Practically speaking, that's not true. That's totally not. A large share of people uh, do not end up identifying with the race or ethnic identity of their parents, particularly for Hispanics, mm-hmm. um, and particularly for uh, Hispanic, where only one parent is Hispanic, it identifies as Hispanic. Um, there was this, there have been a couple studies done in this, um, looking longitudinally at people in census data. Also, some people who identify as a given race or ethnic group in one census change in the next one. Mm-hmm. So an individual's identity is not fixed. Um, and uh, and there is, uh, if I could pun a bit, there is a white shift, right? That mm-hmm. people drift towards whiteness. Um, they're more likely to cease to identify as minority and become white than a white person to identify as a minority. Mm-hmm. So, uh, despite some interesting incentives in college admissions and sure, various places yeah, yeah. not to do that, yeah, right? you get this story that there's this like huge identification towards minority status, and yes, people do that when when there's like an application with money on the line, mm-hmm. but uh, it's like the number of Native Americans skyrocketed. Yeah, so they're they're <laughs> not from immigration. <laughs> yeah. yeah, um, they're Native Americans are one of the only categories where this may not be true, but they're a small, much. I mean, they're much smaller. Um, so not, they're not really an important part of the story of macro demographic racial change, right? Sure. Great um, people. Oh, sure. Yeah. Different yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah, man. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Hawaiian Islanders, Alaska natives, Native Americans, you know, there's interesting things going on with racial and ethnic identification there, but it's not, this is a story about Hispanics, Asians, and to some extent, African-Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, when is this exactly going to happen? And when we are a minority my majority, will these minority groups have the same perception of themselves as they do today? Mm-hmm. The answer is no. Mm-hmm. They're not. I mean, interracial marriage is rising rapidly. The share that identify with multiple races is rising rapidly. The median American in 100 years is not going to be Asian or mm-hmm. black or Hispanic. The median American is going to be American mix. Mm-hmm. Um, which you see this in Brazil, by the way, where uh, mm-hmm. where interracial marriage has been common for a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Um, where the median Brazilian, their ethnic identity, I forget the term they have for it, but it basically is just Brazilian hybrid, mm-hmm. right? That's like the geni- – that's that's what most people identify as. Right. Um, or they just don't identify or they will not necessarily identify – as a racial or ethnic thing. I mean, the, the right. idea the, that you the, have to... On the census, they might check a box, but in their day-to-day life, they might not organize their life around this concept. Right. Um, and so I actually feel like... And the Census Bureau is always changing how they count race, right? So uh, I believe the latest decision for this census is that um, 
there will be a longer list of races, mm-hmm. and my recollection is you will check boxes. Um, and I think this is a very good change, actually. You'll no longer sort of pick one. You'll just sort of check. And it's from a longer list. And I think in the long run, what we should do is we should drop the race question altogether. Mm-hmm. And we should say, please specify your ancestry. Specify at least two. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can't think of two, then you can just say American or whatever. Yeah. But um, And then if we really are concerned about you know skin color discrimination, then you can give people a color palette and we can just make it as racist as this concept really is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because at this point, why do we track, uh, why do we track racial identification? Well, because it's real in people's lives. Well, why is it real in people's lives? Because of their experience of skin color based discrimination. Asian is not a category, right? A Hmong person in Minnesota is not the same as a Korean in California. Mm. They have very different lives, cultures, languages, experiences of America. That's um, also true with a lot of Hispanics. Right, yeah. Cubans yeah, yeah. and Mexicans yeah, yeah. are not the same yeah. people or culture. Yeah, you know? so why do we care about this? Well, it's skin color discrimination, right? So if this is what you're concerned about, then just give people a color palette and say, which one is you? And I know that that sounds, you know, this is so racist, but I think we should communicate how racist it is that we still have to track this. Yeah. There's no reason to sugarcoat this. We say, look, we care about your ethnic background. And we care about understanding the odds that people in a given area are going to experience skin color based discrimination. But we're not, we're no longer going to assert that these are the same thing. Mm-hmm. The immigrant origin of Americans, the fact that we talk about our ethnic background, is actually a beautiful thing about our culture. The fact that skin color discrimination exists is a not so beautiful thing about our culture. We shouldn't be asking about these in one question. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, yeah, just on this identity thing. I'm prone to yell at the TV at various things that <laughs> cause me upset. And one of the ones are these genetic testing companies. I can't remember if it's Ancestry or the other There's ones. There's so and, many of them, yeah. And, I, and I, look, I, I, they advertise on podcasts. I have those kits. I haven't filled them out yet. But I'm interested in that stuff. I think it's yeah, useful yeah. information. It's fun. But there's a commercial where – there are a couple versions of this where this guy who grew up – I think it's – um thinking he was German. He did German dances. Yeah. He went to German festivals. He loved that stuff. And then he takes this DNA test and finds out he's not German. He's Scottish. And it may be the other way around, but it doesn't yeah. matter. And all of a sudden, he's like, the final scene of the commercial is him throwing away his later hosen and putting on his <laughs> Scottish kilt, completely rejecting his cultural heritage that yeah. he grew up with, that has all this meaning for him. Yeah. As if, you know, first of all, like, the genes that you have that say you're of Viking descent those genes have a history too, and yeah, you might yeah. have been captured as a slave prisoner yeah, from France or something. Yeah. And this is one of the things I've always liked. You know, well, I, and genetic testing is like you learn something, but it's hard to say what you learned. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> you know, if like my friend Catherine Lopez at National Review, uh, the Bush White House would invite her to every single Hispanic thing possible. Mm-hmm. But she's like black Irish. She's been in, from Ireland for like 15 generations or whatever it is, you know. And But she's got the last name Lopez. Yep. And that's all they really want. My wife, whose last name is Gavora and uh, whose family, or the Gavoras, are from Slovakia, yep. it sounded Hispanic yep. enough that she got invited to all this stuff. It's all such nonsense, you know. But there is this incentive in our culture to say, as all these other institutions and all these other sources of meaning are crumbling down, the one place of real authenticity is in your genes. Yeah. And that's creepy to me. It is creepy. Yeah. And this is why I really think, um, I mean, you know, it's interesting, fun stuff, but 
it isn't about genes, right? And this is this is my real beef with actually the White Shift book, right? Mm. They talk about this white identity. And when you talk to somebody who's really into white identity and you say, well, okay, what is your culture? What is this thing that you say you're defending? Actually, this came up with the whole Amy Wax thing. Mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. Like, okay, so you want to defect, defend your culture. Well, what is your culture? And I would argue, personally, I, I think I have a thousand times more cultural kinship with an urbanized... English-speaking Protestant Nigerian mm-hmm. than I have with an Orthodox, Slavic-speaking, rural uh, hung, um, Romanian, mm-hmm. right? Culturally speaking, me and the Nigerian, we are, we are, you can't really distinguish between us in terms of how we live our life, mm-hmm. the values that we have. Um, in terms of our attitudes, our, the things we count as our history, as the important things in our history. But me and the Romanian, we're quite different. Um, cultural distance doesn't really have a lot to do with race. So I understand when you say, well, we're worried about losing our culture. I'm like, I'm here for that. I understand. I want my children to uh, enjoy the same. I want them to, to enjoy the same beautiful gift of cultural patrimony that I have. I want that for them, but also race has so little to do with that. Yeah. Or it certainly should it, have it so should, little to do with it. It should, but also, I mean, I think empirically it really doesn't yeah. have a lot to do with it. Even for African-Americans it does, but that's partly because we've forced it to, right? Mm-hmm. This is a legacy of a group not that said we're going to make blackness our culture because they had many different cultures when they were brought here forcibly, right? but because American society said blackness is your culture, Right. So this is a, a new, unique case where there is a homogeneity between it. And I do worry that we are creating a white culture by uh, partly by progressives talking about white culture. I agree. That's where I was going to go. Um, I mean, and, and I, I worry about demonizing that. whiteness. You create yeah. whiteness. Well, and the thing is that uh, it when you really interrogate, like, what is the content of this culture? There's not there's no there there. Mm-hmm. It, it's it, it's it's a Potemkin culture. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Uh, but it is beginning to exist in people's minds. So the fastest growing ancestry group in America, because we survey ancestry, we ask people, what is your ancestry or ethnic group? It's not Mexican. It's not, uh, it's not Korean. It's just white, mm-hmm. not American. It used to be American was really fast growing, just American. Now it's just white. People identifying not white as their race, mm-hmm. white as their ethnicity or ancestry. This is our fastest growing ancestry group. And that's... That's to me not not good. I mean, there is no cultural content to whiteness, mm-hmm. and I mean, I know that some people say that there is. There's truly not. Mm-hmm. There's cultural content to pole to being a pole. Yeah. There's cultural content to being, I don't know, a Protestant or a Catholic or a Jewish. There's cultural content to being an English speaker, perhaps. There's cultural content to being from the West, if you like. But white, what is the cultural? Yeah. What is this culture you're talking about? Um, it's not the West. Yeah. It's not Christianity. It's not English speakingness. It's not America. What, what is this culture? And I think people don't have a clear idea, but increasingly it seems to be, it's about being angry that, uh, being angry about, um, minority cultural, um, assertiveness, let's say. And somehow having a, much richer variety of takeout food is a bad thing. <laughs> I agree with you entirely on this. All right, so let, let, let's, let's move to a system where there actually is real racial persecution, segregation, um, and all the rest, which is Han-dominated China. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't want to get you in no, trouble. No, no. 
because uh, you actually have to so, live there. But uh, There's actually a really neat segue here uh-huh. about ethnic identification. So Hong Kong does these surveys every so often where they ask people, do you consider yourself Asian? Do you consider yourself ethnically Chinese? Do you consider yourself a citizen of the Republic of China or of the People's Republic? Not the Republic of China. Different. The yeah. People's Republic of China. Do you consider yourself a citizen of the world? Do you consider yourself a Hong Konger, an ethnic Hong Konger? And for a long time, the share that considered themselves primarily Chinese was flat or rising. And the share that considered themselves ethnically Hong Konger was kind of flat or declining. But since these recent protests have broke out and since this whole extradition controversy, the share that identify as ethnic as uh, primarily a citizen of China, I believe, has fallen to a minority of the population. Hmm. And the share that identify themselves as ethnically Hong Konger has risen, I think, to over 70 percent. But there is politically driven ethnogenesis happening in Hong Kong, yeah. which as a demographer is just fascinating to, yeah, to yeah, watch. Yeah. But it relates to the story of the emergence of white identity, right? That you get this political crisis that people perceive as as uh, falling along lines that maybe existed before, ethnic lines that existed before, but they didn't mean anything. And suddenly it makes those identities meaningful. Yeah. yeah. And so people change their identification. Yeah. I mean, you're seeing... I, I don't think it's ethnogenesis so much as ethno regression in Europe, right? It has, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I don't mean that in a neg- pejorative sense, yeah. but it's just like as the EU becomes more powerful, yeah, people reasserting the argument for allegiance to the national government and their various countries weakens. So you have the the Barcelona and you know the 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 the, the mm-hmm. was it Catalan? No, yeah, uh, Catalan. The Catalan separatists, Welsh, Irish. Scottish. Because Basques and and that's the I think the time bomb inside the EU is that the EU by definition because of the weird centrifugal forces it's creating is causing small ethnic minorities to yep. reassert themselves, which is debilitating to or threatening to the national governments that make the EU possible. Yep. But anyway, back to China. How do you think that all this stuff is going to play out in Hong Kong? <laughs> um. You know, it's it's truly impossible to say. Um, you know, I'll, I believe uh, it's – I might get this wrong, but I believe it was Lo Ping just died recently. He was the uh, premier who oversaw Tiananmen Square. Mm-hmm. When he died, there were celebrations in Hong Kong. One of these celebrations was in front of the Chinese liaison office. And some people threw some paint on the logo of uh, the PRC. Throughout these protests, China had uh, – Beijing had mostly remained – not quiet, but they'd kind of been a little bit standoffish, mm-hmm. sort of trying to at least appear like they were letting the Hong Kong government handle it. A little bit of paint on the logo, and suddenly they, you know, they come out of hiding, have a press conference, and in the press conference, a journalist asks asks a question. Of course, there are no surprise questions in China, and they ask, you know, uh, would there ever be a circumstance where the military has to go into Hong Kong? And they answer, well, Article Fourteen of the Basic Law of Hong Kong does say that. That if the government of Hong Kong requests it, the People's Liberation Army can be deployed to, to mm-hmm. Hong Kong. Um, and it was this whole, like, we're just answering a question that someone asked. <laughs> yeah. Right? But the thing that finally got them to come out of hiding uh, and, and really talk on this um, was not two million people. It was not a third of the population in the streets. It was not triad gangsters coming out and beating up commuters in broad daylight. Right. It was not um, the overnight evaporation of the rule of law. It was paint on the logo. Mm-hmm. Now, you can contrast this, 
So there's this special autonomous region of a superpower where there's an unpopular governor whose unpopularity is provoking street protests. And of course, I'm talking about Puerto Rico, right? Mm-hmm. So in, in, in Hong Kong, this is like a regime threat. Yeah. Right? A city of 7 million people in a city in a country of 1.4 billion is a threat to the stability of the entire system. But in America, we have the exact same thing happening in Puerto Rico. And like the dude steps down and it's no problem mm-hmm. for the wider system. So where does this all lead? This leads to a systematic confrontation in China. At the end of the day, the Chinese system is not built to handle local challenges. Mm -hmm. It's built to crush local challenges, right? It's a unifying system because this is the classic history in China is between uh, centralization and and, uh, local power, right? This is always the, the axis of Chinese history. So, uh, it, it ends towards a real showdown. Uh, this current government has really emphasized centralization. Mm -hmm. Previous government was more decentralized. Um, Hong Kong is really testing whether the commitment to centralization can be enforced um, in all contexts. And so far, Hong Kong, the Hong Kong people are winning. Yeah. Um, Now there was, but if uh, aside from the separate legal status of Hong Kong, if Hong Kong wasn't if the threat of capital flight and Western attention wasn't so great, or if this had been some province yeah. in eastern China, I mean, things going with the Uyghurs, <laughs> much less attention gets yeah. paid on that. Yeah. And that's a moral outrage. So I don't know if it's about capital flight as it is about publicity. Mm-hmm. Westerners care about Hong Kong, whereas Muslims are not the first concern of Western audiences, mm-hmm. for better or for worse. Uh, mostly for worse. And Muslim countries, by and large, have abdicated their uh, moral interest in Muslims in China. Mm-hmm. Um, you could say the same about some Catholics, but that's another <laughs> yeah. topic. <laughs> um, but uh, so, I mean, Muslim countries are not, except a little bit Turkey, are really not protesting the treatment of Muslims in China, and which says a lot about the quality of piety among uh, many of the leaders of these Muslim countries. So what's really going is just that Westerners have friends who are Hong Kongers, right? So they're just harder to mess with. Um, And at the same time, you get a situation where China, especially the current government, really has a specific vision of Chinese-ness. What does it mean to be Chinese? They're not blind to the fact that they are creating a new minority group, that they are destroying Chinese identity. They are creating this sense of... Hong Kongerness that is opposed to their version of Chineseness. Mm. They're not blind to that. So I think that they are worried about creating, uh, about undermining their own attempt at cultural centralization. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just Westerners would like to think it's just it's just Western capital flight that we are the ones in charge here, but we're not. Mm. What's really going on here is that there are real checks on the power of the center in China. There always have been. Local power, even the power of the party, is largely based on local elites consenting. So uh, there has always been local resistance to party activity. Hong Kong is a very prominent example of this. Uh, and there will continue to be. And at some point, the the pendulum is going to swing the other way. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's now, whether it's later... Now, it could be that this ends in, you know, uh, bodies on the ground in, in Hong Kong. It might be that this is not the time when the pendulum swings the other way. I hope and pray not um, for my own sake and for my neighbors and yeah. for the, the worlds. But it is, it is possible. That's why it's, it's hard to say exactly what's going to happen for Hong Kong. But in the long run, 
Centralization in China never lasts forever. Mm-hmm. So it's, I mean, we got we got to wrap this up because we got to wrap this up. But um, this is one of my minor obsessions. Is um, this this guy John Tooby, sort of the father of evolutionary psychology and all that stuff? And he talks about the coalition instinct. And one of the points he makes is that groups form identities around weird abstractions at times, and then they define themselves against other groups who have weird abstractions, and then they heighten their differences. Um, in order to exacerbate them. You know, an example I often use is that Jews used to put flowers on their loved ones' graves, and then the Christians started doing it, so the Jews said, well, yeah, we can't do that anymore. <laughs> and um, and don't, let's not even start with circumcision. But, um, uh, the you know, there's Tubi makes the point that arguably there are more slaves today than there were 200 years ago around the world. I'm not sure that's true or not, yeah. but let's just assert that it is. Regardless, the institution of slavery does not arouse the kind of passion today that it did among abolitionists a long time ago or that it does about our own past here. Mm -hmm. And so one of the points I often make is that in many ways, China is as much an apartheid state as as South Africa was, as the United States was in the 1950s or whenever you want to pick a date. If you're not an ethnic Chinese, there are all sorts of handicaps that you have. If you look at the Uyghurs being put in re-education camps, you know. Uh, it's not just ethnic Chinese. You've got to be a Mandarin-speaking ethnic. Right. No, that's my point. There are all yeah. these gradations of, of caste yeah. in China. And part of it is due to the fact that the, the, the was it the Han or the, the biggest population? It's Han, right? Han, but even uh, Han is, is just sort of all Chinese people. Like Hong Kongers would call themselves Han. Um, but within that, it's really linguistic divisions. Right. That's okay. What talking about. So South China is Yu Chinese. Mm-hmm. North China is mm, is it Jin? I forget. Um, but you get these different linguistic. It's it's not an ethnic. Well, it is ethnic, but it's it's linguistic difference. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that. But if you read like uh, Johann Fick's letter to the German nation before they ever got to the genetic or the the ethnic stuff, it was all about language too, right? And language is this really powerful thing about dividing groups. And, but regardless, my my only point is is that if this was white people doing this to non-white people, the way China is treating various groups in China, the moral outrage in the West would be through the roof. Uh, Instead, you get a little sort of Richard Gere protest about Tibet and a few people writing columns like me and Eli Lake about the Uyghurs, and that's about it. Yep. And I mean, Muslims are not, do not arouse the sympathy of Americans um, for some obvious reasons and some disappointing reasons. Um, but uh, and beyond that, um, I think in the West, and this is, it's to some, I think this is actually less so in America. We tend to care a bit more about this, um, partly because we have a lot of Asian neighbors, but particularly, I mean, we literally have Asian neighbors in America. Um, but particularly in Europe, there's not as much interest in uh, Asians oppress- oppressing Asians. Mm-hmm. Um, the rhetoric of oppression in Asia is about uh, colonialism right. and imperialism. And Asians oppressing Asians uh, is not um, – Western audiences don't have as much interest in it. And partly that's because all societies – are insular to some degree and they care about their own activities and their own grievances and their own uh, glories and sins. Um, and I think part of it is also um, a, uh, an ingrained racism mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what things matter. Um, and there's also, I mean, I, I, I stipulated and, you know, you've said a few times about how Americans really don't care about Muslims and, and 
you could say the same about Europeans. Yeah. <laughs> not a lot of people criticizing, and, and no. as you said, Muslims, because yeah. there are not a lot of, yeah. basically, the, the power worship about China yeah. is silencing a lot of people. But part of my point is, is that it's this, the passion we have about negative polarization, sort of domestic partisan tribalism, that since you can't say that one party or one clan, ideological clan, is pro-Chinese repression, yeah. you don't care about it as much because you can't say, see, that's why those guys are bad. So there was a fascinating case where this almost broke through after uh, Notre Dame burned down. Uh, there was, uh, you know, a lot of people responding, well, it's just a building. Um, and, you know, as a, as an unrepentant prot, part of me was like, well, it is just a building. But, uh, <laughs> but, um, uh, but there was this other thing where a lot of progressives says, well, look, the Chinese just bulldozed this, you know, thousand-year-old mosque in Western China last week. Why were none of you protesting that? Mm-hmm. And this narrative kind of broke through a little bit. This yeah. suddenly, suddenly a lot of progressives cared about Uyghurs. Yeah. And it was amazing to watch. I mean, I, in my previous work, I worked in Central Asia a lot for the U.S. government. Muslims in Central Asia, and it is a bit controversial that I would refer to uh, Xinjiang as Central Asia, but I would. Um, Muslims in Central Asia face a lot of unique challenges to the practice of their faith, even from their local governments um, and from China. I care a lot about this. I, I I feel for these people. And it was amazing to see a lot of people who have not cared about this in, in ever suddenly discover the plight of Muslims in in what they would refer to as East Turkestan, mm-hmm. um, suddenly wake up and, oh, yeah, these people really matter because it was a chance to uh, to say that um, concern about uh, the fire in Notre Dame was, uh, was like, you know, racist or unfair. That suddenly, suddenly Uyghurs mattered yeah. when they were a stick to beat uh, conservative Catholics with. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. I, yeah. I, and that's, that's the thing that drives me crazy. It's like I, the... The, there is a kind of cultural imperialism in which we impose our partisan affiliations yeah. on moral conundrums abroad that have nothing to do with our 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 baggage. And if I if I could call out my uh, my least favorite Republican, Steve King. <laughs> Fair enough. This is that's low hanging fruit. This is yeah, I know. <laughs> well, Dana Rohrabacher was voted out, so I'm like, well, okay, okay, great. So Steve King's still there, right? Um, I mean, he, this is like his whole his whole career practically is like going and visiting right wing groups in other countries and declaring them like his his brothers in arms, mm-hmm. right? It's like we're going to go and I'm just like, why do you need to be involved in Austrian politics? Right, you don't. Politics should stop at the water's edge. Um, just like particularly because the odds. When you consider the fact that the odds that Steve King has anything like a granular knowledge of Austrian politics. No, it's like he sits down in this meeting and it's like this party was literally founded by Nazis. Yeah. Like not not Nazis in the way we use it today, but like they had an armband Nazis. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I, yeah, just you get this thing where people increasingly are – are homogenizing the conflicts in foreign countries with our own. And you see this in the immigration rhetoric in America where people talk about, oh, there's all these millions of Muslims coming in. And I'm like, to Germany. Yeah. To Germany. Yeah. Not to America. Yeah. yeah. This is not our issue. Yeah. (laughs) You know, if we face the the troubles that they have in Central and Eastern Europe, you know, okay, that'd be a different conversation. But the immigration problem in Europe and America – they have nothing in common. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Or 
in the fairness, in, in, as a nod to nuance, very little in common. Very little in common. <laughs> they are immigration issues, right? There are, yeah. They have very little in common. Okay, so uh, we actually really do have to wrap, but um, uh, recently on Twitter, because we don't know when this is going to air, so I don't want to... I, I don't want this incredibly important issue to seem no longer relevant. You were enraged by the Lutheran Church's position on the Oxford comma? Uh, <laughs> yes. What, what is going on there? My denomination style guide says you should not use the Oxford comma. And as the duly elected Pope of Lutheran Twitter, uh-huh. uh, I have anathematized the style guide of my own denomination. They are they are persona non grata as far as I'm concerned. But you're not going to leave the church over this. No, I will stay and fight for the true <laughs> and orthodox position that the Oxford comma, we worship uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not Father, which is Son and Holy Spirit. The Oxford comma is a Trinitarian necessity. <laughs> See, this is, this is the kind of stuff I wish we could argue about. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm Pro Oxford comma. I mean, just, just, be, just be very clear. It sort of reminds me of of uh, Mark Stein did this fantastic piece about the the bike path left about fifteen years ago, where he pointed out that Howard Dean belonged to some prod denomination church. I don't think it was Lutheran, and he stuck with his church over gay marriage. He stuck with his church over a dozen serious issues. Whatever your position on them doesn't really matter. But he left his church when they opposed the bike path that he was in favor of. <laughs> and so I was kind of hoping you were saying, this is it. I'm done with the Lutherans. I'm going Eastern no. Orthodox or whatever it is. <laughs> but anyway. I will stay and fight the good fight. Uh, Limestone, thanks so much for coming on. I, I, every time you're in Washington, I'd like you to come back because there's a bunch of other stuff I'd like you to talk about. All right, so uh, Lyman has left the building. Um, I can't stay long because I got to write a column, and there's a bunch of other stuff going on. Uh, but I thought that was fun. I mean, that was that was old school wonkery. Uh, what'd you think, Jack? Well, I'm just glad you finally got him on your podcast because I had him on mine like two months ago. Did you really? Mm-hmm. So, I, thanks for catching up. Yeah, yeah, you were a trendsetter. Yeah, yeah, a trendy setter, trend day um, setter. Uh, um, uh, it occurs to me that. It would be enormous fun for this fairly secular Jewish guy to get a good prot and a good Catholic. In. No. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Do it. Just in terms of, you know. I don't, I'm not even going to let you finish that thought. The, the, the sort of like the Seinfeld where Jerry brings up abortion at Poppy's Pizza at, at restaurant and is just really proud of how he ruins everybody's good time <laughs> because they all fight with each other. Because. You don't hear that kind of doctrinal theological stuff anymore, even though it sort of is, defines our so many of our cultural fault lines. It's just sort of like we don't, you know, it's like Monty Python. Don't talk about the war. Um, don't talk about the schisms. Uh, but anyway, I thought it was really interesting. He, um, sorry about that. that I, I've just sent Jack into a blinding rage because I had turned my phone back on uh, after Lyman left the room. Anyway. Um, we don't have much time for, for chit-chat again, but I do want to just put a word in, even though I don't know when this is going to air. Uh, recently, my friend and the father of one of my best friends, uh, uh, Bill Schultz, longtime uh, editor, Washington editor of the Reader's Digest, passed away, and I went to his um, funeral over the weekend, and um, I saw Steve Hayward there. Steve flew back from California just for that. And we were talking about it, about how there's this whole generation of sort of founders of conservatism uh, 
um, or the modern conservative movement who are who are passing away. I mean, Bill went about Bill Buckley went about ten years ago, twelve years ago. Uh, there are a whole bunch of other people that some people haven't heard of, but Bill Schultz, who was just one of the sweetest, best guys, who kept an enormous number of young journalists out of pawn shops and 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 soup kitchens uh, during rough times by keeping, by giving them work or finding them work or finding them jobs, was just really one of the great guys. I had lunch with him many, many times at the Palm where he held court for years. Bill. And I can't remember who else it was. I think it was like Cokie Roberts' dad who had been like the speaker of the house or something like that or the majority leader. And the Boggs from Patton Boggs, like I had this completely wrong. But anyway, the three of them were in a three-way race for years over who had spent the – who would earn the most palm points at the palm for decades. <laughs> and Wow. Um, and uh, uh, it was a rite of passage to go have lunch with Bill and – um, whether he was going to commission work for you or not. And he was a really sweet, wonderful guy. And he left behind uh, an enormous family. He's got four sons, all of whom have above, as Lyman would put it, replacement level fertility. And he'll be sorely missed. And I just thought it was important to say something, in part because there are all these guys who helped win the Cold War by keeping politicians focused on this stuff, who helped keep... Um, the conservative movement alive and focused on important arguments and exposed things. Reader's Digest always got looked down upon by sort of Washington eggheads and intellectuals because it was so popular, right? And I mean that in the, the sort of technical sense. It was, you know, it had 14, 15 million subscribers and it was read by people out in flyover country. And people in Washington like to think that their ideas drove everything and their writing for small journals of opinion wrote, drove everything. But, you know, the Reader's Digest is the thing that would galvanize voters across the country in ways that, you know, the New Republic or National Review could never dream of. And he was so essential to all of that. But he was one of these behind-the-scene players that just never got the limelight, never wanted the limelight. And he was a sweet and wonderful man. And um, I always used to joke with my friend Nick, who's his son, that he was the Catholic Sid Goldberg because he was another one of these guys like my dad who read like 11 newspapers and 25 magazines every week and and sort of, sort of knew a little bit about everything and a lot about a lot of things. Anyway, it was a very touching thing, and I thought I should say something. And since I'm not writing at the corner or anything, I couldn't do a post over there. And I thought I would say something here. So Bill Schultz, rest in peace. Um, Jack, is there any other action items that you want to discuss or that we need to discuss? I, I What am I supposed to say after that? I can't, I can't <laughs> introduce levity now. Fair enough. All right. So everybody, if you can sign up at Reagan35x.com, please help push uh, this podcast where and when you can. I really appreciate it. I have been trying to stay off the punditry this summer in part because I'm sick of punditry and in part because I figure a lot of people are out there driving around on family vacations and whatnot. And they might want to revisit older podcasts or wanted to give these things longer shelf life. I certainly think the one we did today has a long shelf life. Um, and uh, thanks again to everybody, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>
and it's Stokey. Uh, no, Stone. Stokey. Stone, Stone K Y. No, I'm sorry. My handle was Lyman Stone K Y. Okay, I apologize. I actually didn't know that. But a lot of people are like, "Are you Jewish?" Stone Keys. Yeah. No, I. Nope. Just. I actually did know this. It's been a day. 